Solitaire Rose Novelcast, Do the Job, Episode 5. not even going to talk about why it's been so long that I've uh, done an episode. There are a number of things that got in the way, but uh, let's just say that uh, two jobs, all the other podcasts, and uh, not enough sleep. But we're back. Here's episode five. What has gone before? Lance Green is a former professional wrestler who had to retire due to a neck injury. He was able to put together a life as a private investigator and one of the people he used to wrestle with has come to him and asked that he investigate the overdose of another professional wrestler from back in the day. As he begins to dig in, he finds that there's more going on than just a drug overdose. Gene shook my hand and said he had to get back to work. I followed him until he left the locker room and started to help the ring crew set everything up. It was taking them a lot longer than I remember, but when I looked out of the locker room, I saw the crew was mostly young kids. If the oldest one was 15, I'd be amazed, and not a one of them had to be taught how to use a razor yet. The locker room was filling up, and the workers who hadn't seen me when I showed up all came over and shook my hand. It took me a minute to remember that in the wrestling world, you don't give a strong, hearty handshake, but instead, when a worker shakes another worker's hands, they do it soft, almost like a limp handshake. It's from the old carny days of the business, and was how you could tell that someone knew the business was a work. The handshake told you, I know it's all a work, and you can trust me that I'll take care of you in the ring. I chatted with all of them for a while, and was shocked at how the locker room had changed. Not just that there weren't as many people, but how things had shaken out. There were workers on the way up who needed a lot more time in the ring before they'd be any good, and workers whose best days were behind them. Even Dan's champion was nasty Dave Natalia, who'd been champion through most of the 70s and was now starting to look his age. He had to be in his 50s, and next to him the workers who were new looked like little kids. We chatted, and I told the young workers stories of my days in the ring, and older workers about what I'd been up to since they'd last seen me. As they were starting to suit up and look out at the slowly growing crowd outside the locker room, one of the younger workers came up to me and said, I heard you were great at getting the crowd to pop when you wanted them to. I was okay at it, I said modestly. I'd been a Minnesotan most of my life, and living here had made it impossible for me to feel good about bragging. I just can't seem to get the crowd to give a damn, he said. The heel will work me over forever, but when I make my comeback, they just don't buy it. I do all the stuff Mikey and Eddie taught me, but I just can't connect. I looked him over, and he was in the typical boring black trunks that Dan put most of his workers in. Dan believed that he needed to keep the illusion of it being an athletic contest, and unless you had a character you were doing, or were a star he brought in from somewhere else, you weren't allowed to have flashy tights. He was in decent shape and was a fairly typical Minnesotan. 
I imagine he'd played high school football, and when college ball didn't work out, Mike Eretti brought him out to the barn and put him through his paces. All right, I said. The first thing to do is make sure that the heel's getting good heat. They won't care about you if they don't hate him. Make sure to play up to the referee when he cheats. Do the bit in the ring where you're ready to fight when he starts to stall. What I always did was pick out a single fan in the crowd, some mark who really believed. Talk directly to them. You're a good-looking kid, so it'd be best if you picked a woman. Someone around your age. Whenever the heel starts his stuff, just look at her and complain about what's going on. Don't do it all through the match, but enough that she's made a connection to you. Then, when the heel's dominating, make sure to give her a look once in a while. Sell your pain to her, not the whole crowd. The crowd will get into it, trust me, but for you, there's either the whole crowd or just her. When the heel has you down and is working you, make sure you're facing her. Wait for it. Wait until you've been in the hold for a while and that you're just about to give up. Then have the heel cheat. Foot on the rope, thumb to the eye, whatever. Just make it sure it's blatant to the crowd and the referee's in the right position to miss it. Lock eyes with her. Make sure she's emotionally connected and mouth the words, Help me, so that she can see it. That will drive her nuts, and anybody around who sees it will go nuts too. When you make your comeback, that'll make the crowd pop. That's such a great idea, the kid said. It always worked for me, I said. It's like when a heel picks someone out of the crowd and just makes fun of them the whole night. Thanks, champ, he said, and went back to getting ready for his match. You trying to put me out of business, Lightning? I heard behind me. I turned to see Plenty in full ring gear, belt over her shoulder. She had a huge smile on her face and filled out those tights in such a way that if I didn't have Katie waiting for me at home, I'd be turning on the Lightning Kid charm. Not that it would have worked. I'm just helping on the workers, I said. It's a good trick, she said. I used it back when I was a babyface. Now that I'm a heel, I just pick out that one guy in the crowd who looks like he'd like to get in these tights and yell at him the way I'd treat my last boyfriend if I'd have half a chance. You mean he left you voluntarily? How many bumps did he take before that decision, I said. None, she said laughing. He didn't know the business. I wouldn't let any of these guys get half a chance with me. I had no idea you were the champ, I said, motioning back to the belt slung over her shoulder. There's only four women in the Federation. I'm the only one who knows what the hell to do in the ring, so Dan's going to have a champ? It's going to be me. We chatted about other stuff until the match started. Then we moved to a place where we could watch the matches but not be seen by the crowd. Only the older workers were watching the matches. The younger guys were still getting their gear on or sitting in the locker room bullshitting with each other. The place was about half full, and when the house lights were down, we were able to stand by the back wall and not be seen. The ring was set up in the gym of the armory, with everything around it, including metal folding chairs. They had some stage lights aimed at the ring, and some smaller lights set up at the makeshift concession stand by the door. They had a microphone with a speaker for the ring announcer. I'd noticed that the ring music had started to be used by some of the larger federations, but Dan would have none of it. The worker was announced, and he came to the ring. The baby face slapping the hands of the fans and waving at the kids, while the heel looked disgusted to be anywhere near them. The first two matches were, at best, clusterfucks. I recognized one of the guys in the first match as being one of the students who was in the batch with Plenty and Eddie, although I could have figured he was still green by watching him work. He had two or three basic moves, no idea in the world how to make the other guy's moves look good, and blew more spots than he got right. 
The second match wasn't much better, but they could at least sell that they'd actually been hit a little better than the first guys. As I watched, I wondered why Dan didn't have some of the older guys working with the younger guys, since they could use the time in the ring. They could teach the guys things and cover up all the screw-ups. There were supposed to be seven matches overall, and when they announced the people in the third match, I shook my head, knowing it was going to be another couple of young guys I'd never heard of. I looked around to see where Dan and Gene were, and when I saw that they were working the concession stand, I made my way to the back. None of the workers in the locker room were paying any attention to me, so I slipped in the back room that Dan was using for his office. He left his gym bag on the floor next to the chair I'd been sitting in when we talked. I dropped my pad of paper on the floor next to it in case somebody came in. I'd have an excuse to be knelt down beside it. I quickly went through it, seeing he had his tights, probably in case he had to get in the ring for someone not showing up. Also, wrapped up in a towel was a small handgun. It shocked me to find it there, and I nearly dropped it when I discovered it. I rewrapped it and placed it back in the bag. I checked in the small zippered pockets on the side and found mostly what I would expect. Small hotel bottles of shampoo, conditioner, toothpaste, plastic container for soap. When I checked the front pocket, I found a small baggie filled with white powder. I froze. It looked exactly like the one I'd found in Mikey's car, right down to the color of the plastic zipper at the top of the baggie keeping it closed. I had no idea how long I squatted there, staring at the baggie and not believing what I'd seen. When I heard a noise from the locker room, I quickly shoved it in my pocket, then zipped the pocket closed. I don't know why I did, other than the fact that I wanted to see if it was heroin, like I'd found in Mikey's car. I wasn't enough of a scientist, or even knew anyone who could tell if it was the same batch of drug as Mikey's, but I'd heard rumors that the police could do that somehow, so I thought if I needed to prove something, I'd have both samples. When I stood up, I could tell the sound was the crowd cheering, which probably meant the third match was over. I slipped back into the locker room and saw the workers were emptying out, some of them carrying t-shirts and pictures to sign and sell. Others were just heading out and going over the concession stand. Intermission was where they could sell their own merchandise, or if they didn't have any of their own, they'd help sell soda, popcorn, and anything else Dan had been able to fit into the two tables he'd set up. Back when I was champion, we were in much bigger venues, and he would actually hire people to work merchandise stands, and the venue would run the concessions. I shook my head and thought about how far he'd fallen in the last five years. I didn't even know if he had TV deals anymore since I'd quit watching the show a couple of years before. I watched as some of the fans left the building and wondered how many would be coming back when the bell sounded for the next four matches. Some of the bigger names were having some success selling their t-shirts, but for the most part, the fans who stayed in the building were in their seats or grabbing something to eat. It was quieter than I thought it would be, and basketball courts like this are pretty much best known for magnifying sound. Dan kept the intermission going for almost a half hour, making me think he was keeping it going until he made a certain amount of money. By the time they lowered the lights and rang the bell for the next match, the crowd had shrunk to about two-thirds of what it had been when the lights came up. As the ring announcers started to give information on their upcoming cards, Dan came storming to the back, grabbed the robe of one of the two workers about to head to the ring. I was close enough that I could hear him say, We lost the crowd, so you're going to have to bring them back. Do whatever you have to to draw heat. Make sure both of you give the match some color. I don't want to have to give out any more refunds. So that's why the intermission was so long. He was out in the hallway, talking people out asking for their money back. I couldn't blame the people who'd wanted their admission back, as the first half of the show was embarrassing. 
The guy he'd talked to nodded and ran to the ring when he was announced. I hadn't seen him before, but he was obviously someone who'd been around for a while, since he got booze from the crowd before he did anything. The announcer, Bob Taylor, had been with Dan for years before I showed up and stepped into the ring. He was a small man, only about five foot two, but that's why Dan loved him. He made all the workers look huge by comparison. He was wearing a black suit that had seen better days, and his white hair looked as if he'd combed it into place a couple of days ago hadn't paid any attention to it since. He had a 70s mustache that someone should tell him made him look like a retired porn star instead of a distinguished ring announcer, and the face of an insurance salesman who'd just come into the room to tell you that your accident wasn't covered. He had a booming voice, and through the microphone and small speaker, he still cut through the crowd noise. Our next contest is one fall with a 30-minute time limit. Coming to the ring at this time, from New York City, which immediately got the crowd booing, Mr. Incredible John Starr. He got into the ring, robes flowing, and grabbed the microphone out of the announcer's hand. He looked over the crowd and let the booze grow a bit before he said, I'm sick of having to show up at this sad, pathetic little dump to perform in front of a bunch of four-sandwich-eating, Walmart-shopping, polyester-wearing, cheese-whiz-buying, four-dirty-kid-having, worthless, out-of-shape Minnesota morons. He pointed at the guy in the front row who was yelling at him and said, You there! Yeah, you! You tubby bastard! Why don't you shut the hell up, or I'll take that fat woman sitting next to you back to my suite and show her that a man can last more than 60 seconds. Back in New York City, more booze and paper cups were thrown at him. You wouldn't even be allowed to go outside after dark because of the local decency laws. With that, the crowd went crazy. There were people yelling at him, and more than a few paper cups of beer and soda went flying toward the ring. He handed the microphone back to the announcer and took some muscle poses, which infuriated the crowd even more. I saw the kid I talked to earlier about how to get the crowd to love him running toward the ring as the announcer called out his name and statistics, and I smiled knowing that Starr had set the table for him to come in and get the crowd to love him. Bob said, And now entering the ring... From Bloomington, Minnesota, cheers louder than anything I'd heard so far that night, the natural Ole Johnson. Jesus, they were piling it on with this kid. I didn't think there was a name that could have been more Minnesotan, and the crowd was eating it up with a spoon. Ole, if that was anything close to what his actual name was, was a pretty generic baby face. He got out of the ring, shook some hands, gave as many kids as he could a high five, and pointed to people in the crowd that were reacting strongly to him. He got back in the ring and John got out of the ring, acted like he wanted nothing to do with the kid. He shouted at members of the crowd to shut up and acted as if he was disgusted by being in the same vicinity as the fans. They were doing a great job of winning the crowd back after almost an hour of bad ring work and a break longer than I would have put up with. The bell rang and John kept outside the ring, stalling the start of the match and making the crowd even more upset. When the referee would start to count him out, he'd wait until he got to the count of eight, then duck into the ring under the bottom rope, and then back out onto the floor. I smiled at that as well, knowing it was another way to get cheap heat and drive the crowd crazy. I felt a tap on my shoulder, and when I turned, Dan was behind me. His face was a scowl, and I was nervous for a moment, wondering if he'd discovered my look through his gym bag. 
What do you think so far, he asked. Those first three matches were an embarrassment, Dan. I shouldn't have let those workers be in front of a crowd yet. They stunk up the room so bad, I'm surprised more people didn't ask for their money back. Dan winced. I know, but what the hell am I supposed to do? They steal away all my talent. Do you hear how Brad gets his syndicated TV spots? He pays the station to run his show. I counted on the money from those stations running my show, and he's paying them all to air his. I can't compete with that. I didn't know what to say. I'd been away from the business for a while, but if this was what was happening to the smaller guys, how could they compete? Then again, why should wrestling be any different from any other business? The small diners that used to be along the roadside were being replaced with McDonald's, Burger King, and the like. The local video store near my office had only been able to hold on for about six months when a blockbuster built a store a couple of blocks away. The local drug store shut down when the big chain store moved in, and I'm sure they felt it wasn't fair either. I looked around at the shabby setup, the small crowd, then saw the defeated look on Dan's face and wondered if this was the future. How long until there was some big chain of detective agencies that set up in strip malls, cut prices, and drove me out of business? Did I have a year? Ten? I couldn't help thinking that the only business that couldn't be gobbled up by big chains were the ones that didn't make much money. It was better when you were around, Lightning, he said finally. Do you miss it? I felt my neck and remembered how much it hurt that morning when I woke up. If I didn't sleep in the right position, my neck would hurt the entire day. Sometimes she wouldn't feel better for a few days. I slapped Dan on the back and said, I do, Dan. You ran a great federation. Chapter 4 After the show, I drove back to my office. It was late, and I had to go over to Brad's TV taping at the St. Paul Civic Center the next day, but I wanted to write down my notes from the night as well as shove the drugs I'd found into my safe. The last thing I wanted was for Katie or the police to find that I had drugs on me and make, make me explain where I'd gotten them and why I had them. It would be a quick road to jail, divorce, or worse. Hell, I wouldn't have believed the story if someone had told me that's why they had a plastic baggie of heroin in their front pants pocket. I drove through the city, which seemed quiet for Saturday night. The show had gotten done a little before midnight. While I was taking mostly back streets and avoiding the freeways, it was still strange to me how many houses were dark, how many stores and bars were closed, and it reminded me that in a lot of ways the Minneapolis suburbs were still small towns at heart. I pulled in the parking lot of the strip mall my office was in and turned off the car. It was quiet, lonely almost, and the only sound was the buzzing of the blue security lights. As I walked up to the door, the wind picked up a bit, and I felt one of the first chills of winter. I pulled my coat closed, and in doing so caught a glimpse of the light inside the office. I looked closer and saw that there was a small beam light moving around in the back of the office. I moved to the side where I could just barely see in, and I hoped whoever was moving around wouldn't be able to see me. I watched for a bit and was able to sort out that whoever it was was back in my office toward the back of the storefront. They were moving the light around in a herky-jerky manner as if they were looking for something. I didn't have a gun, and the last thing I wanted to do was call the cops with a pocket full of heroin. It's easy for me to know that I could have hid it somewhere in the parking lot of a strip mall or somewhere in my car, but I was too shocked to discover that someone was in my office to be thinking clearly. Instead, I watched a bit longer and then decided to go around to the back of the building. I went past the Chinese buffet, the nail salon, the dry cleaning place, and slipped around to the back. 
There were a few parking places behind the building, a couple of big metal dumpsters, and various trash that hadn't quite made it into the garbage truck when it made its last pickup. There were no windows and a series of metal doors with the name of each business painted on it with a stencil. I crept over to my door, checked to see if it was locked. It was. I wondered how he would have got in since the front windows weren't broken. Then again, jimming the front door would be just as easy as the back door. I slid my key into the lock slowly, so as not to make any noise. Remember when I told you that I wasn't the kind of private eye that you read about in books? thought about that at the moment, since the ones in the books and movies always have the gun out and are ready to burst in. I didn't carry my gun. It was tucked away safely in the safe I had in my office. The person going through my office had much better access to it than I did at the moment. I hoped against all logic that whoever it was didn't have a gun and quite quietly opened the door. There wasn't a sound as I opened it. I was glad that I'd gotten the landlord to fix it a few months ago when you had to lift up to open it and it would make a large scraping sound as you did so. I paused for a bit when I got the door partly open to see if anything happened. If the beam of light moved over toward me or turned off altogether, I'd have shut the door. But since nothing seemed to change, I slipped in the door and closed it silently behind me. The back of the storefront was dark and there were file cabinets along the walls. The door to the restroom was open, and there was a door leading out into the main part of the storefront. My office was to the right, so in order to get to it, I would have to slip out that door and then move along the wall to get there. I knew there wasn't much I could do in the back room. I saw a couple of steel folding chairs and broke into a quick grin since they were pretty much a standard weapon we would use in the ring for a street fight. They hurt a lot, but they were also pretty much the most impractical thing in the world to try to hit somebody with. I looked around, which was hard to do since I was both trying to keep quiet, but also because there was no direct light in the back room. There was some dim light from the lights that were on in the main part of the storefront. There were about three of the overhead fluorescent lights that were on out of what felt like a thousand during the day. They were always on so that when the police or other security people would be able to look in and see, but it would still look like we were closed. I was wishing we had made more of the lights always on security lights there wasn't anything I could do about it. As I looked around, I glanced in the bathroom and saw there was a length of steel pipe on the floor from where they'd worked on the plumbing in the bathroom. I moved about as silently as I could, got into the bathroom, and picked up the length of pipe. It was about a foot and a half long and was thick enough that it would put a serious hurt on anyone I hit it with. I paused and looked toward my office again. Seeing the light beam swinging around, I started toward it. The beam was moving, a lot slower than it had been, meaning that the person going through things had either found what they were looking for or was spending more time on each area. I flattened myself against the wall and moved slowly, not even taking my feet off the thinly carpeted floor. I listened and all I heard was the sound of paper being moving around. I slid along the wall to get closer and was able to get a peek of who was actually in my office. The door to the office opened outward a change I had them made because the room was so small and needed all the room I could get. And I saw that he was looking over a scattered mess of papers on my desk. His flashlight was being held in his right hand and he was sitting in my chair. He was a smaller guy, hard to say how tall he was because he was sitting down, but since the chair was made for a guy who was six foot four inches and about 270 pounds, he looked like a little kid in some grown-up's chair. His hair was black, stringy, and looked like it hadn't been washed yet this week. He had a scraggly beard and mustache, and his eyes were deep in his face. He was wearing a black leather jacket that had seen a lot of wear. 
With him sitting down, I had a bit of an advantage, so I paused for a second and ran through what I'd be doing in my mind. I took a deep breath and charged into the room. The guy was shocked and didn't react for a second. By then, I was on him. I went over the desk, tackling him. We both fell to the ground, and he took a couple of swings at me with his flashlight. One of them was lucky and caught me right upside the head, and the world went gray for a second. I stayed on top of him and fought my way back, knowing that if I passed out, I would not be waking up. I held him down and grabbed for his arm with the flashlight. We struggled a bit, but I was able to smash his arm into the floor a couple of times, making him drop it. After that, he tried to knee me in the groin, but I was too fast and blocked him as I held him down. For a crazy second, I struggled to keep him down. He kept fighting against me and was able to move so that he was no longer directly under me. When I tried to adjust my grip, he was able to knee me successfully, and the pain was blinding. I lost my grip on him and used another kick to get me away from being on top of him. He leapt up, and I got to my feet as fast as I could, but my head was still swimming, and the pain was so bad I felt like I was going to throw up. He had a wild look in his eyes and lunged for me. Luckily, instinct took over, and I was able to duck the charge and grab him in a headlock. I shifted my arm down so that I was able to drop him into a sleeper hold. I know a lot of people think the sleeper hold is fake, but when it's applied properly, it'll put you out. We have to learn how to do it that way so that we know how to make it look real without making the other guy pass out. The little guy struggled, but since I was almost a foot taller and a hundred pounds heavier than him, he wasn't struggling for long. He slumped in my grip fairly quickly, and when I was sure that he was out, I moved him out in the hall and laid him on the floor. I turned on the lights and called the police. After the call, I went to the back and found some twine that had been used when the bathroom had been worked on, took the little guy and tied him to a chair. The last thing I wanted to have to deal with was him waking up and going for another round. I checked the office and my files were all over the desk and floor. I checked the gun safe and it had been opened somehow. The gun was nowhere to be found and I went back to the passed out burglar and found it in his inside front jacket pocket. I quickly grabbed it and put it back in the safe and closed it, spinning the dial a few times to make sure it was fully locked. I went back and checked him over to see if he had anything else of mine in his pockets including the heroin, but he was clean. I went back to my office and quickly opened my secret safe in the floor. I heard sirens, and since I was inside a building and inside my office in that building, I was pretty sure that meant they were there. I dropped the small package of drugs into the safe, closed it, and then covered it up again. I looked over the office one last time, and it looked as if he'd gone through just about everything before I got there. Desk drawers and file cabinets were open, and with paper all over the floor, it felt like my entire business was in a shambles. I stepped out of my office, and the two officers were in the front of the shop, getting ready to knock on the door. I could tell they were anxious to get in when they saw the weasley little guy passed out and tied to a chair. I let them in, showed them my driver's license and private investigator's license. One of them took care of the little guy while I told my story to the other. There weren't cops I'd seen before, so I took business cars as soon as I could. Dan Callahan and Ron Allred. One was a bit taller than the other, and the smaller one had curly red hair. They were also pretty new to the force, which is probably why they were working a Saturday night. And since they were fresh from the academy, they were in solid physical shape. As Ron worked on waking the little guy up, Dan asked me to sit down and tell him what happened. I told him everything except finding my gun on the guy and the fact that I was dropping off drugs. He was good backed up a few times to ask me a question in a different way, and put in some details I hadn't when, I, when he asked to clarify things. He reminded me a lot of the policemen I'd worked with when I was learning how to do my job. I also knew he'd be checking with Ron 
to see if the story that I told him matched. When he got my statement, Ron was able to wake the guy up, read him his rights, cuffed him, and took him out to the car. The guy didn't struggle and genuinely looked like he was scared of me. When he came back in, Dan and I were done, and Dan asked, did he say anything? Yep, Ron said. Said he wanted a lawyer, and he wouldn't talk until he did. I searched him, and he had lock-picking set. A good one. The kind professionals use. He didn't have any identification on him, but with a set of picks like that, he'll be in the database somewhere. He won't be a cipher too much longer. You want to come down to the station, Dan asked. Not tonight, I said. i got to clean up my office. He made a mess of this place. Any idea what he was after, Ron asked. Nope, I said. But I got him before he found it. He was going through my files, and when I burst in on him, he was still looking through everything. So I'm going to assume he hadn't found it yet. That's strange. You'd think he'd just grab the file alphabetically instead of tearing through everything. Most of these guys work as fast as they can, Dan said. I use my own system, I said. Back in the business, I was taught how to file things differently so outsiders wouldn't know what we were doing. The business, Dan said? I looked at him and saw that he really had no idea who I was. I used to be a professional wrestler, I said. I was the champion of the Midwest Wrestling Alliance before I got into the detective business. You mean the guys on TV Sunday morning, he asked. Yeah, I said. You were probably pretty good since you're a big guy, he said. Why'd you get out? I heard those guys make big money. They do now, I said, but I got injured and had to find another line of work. They then gave me the rundown of what they'd be doing with our mystery break-in artist. Since they were from the county, they'd take him downtown, let him call his lawyer, then try to see what he'd tell him in the morning. Ron told me that the guy was making noise about pressing charges for assault. I nodded, said I'd been through that before. They handed me a sheet about my rights as a victim of a crime. and got my home number as well as the office number. When they were gone, I started work on cleaning up the mess my visitor had left. I turned on the radio to keep me company and found a station playing some decent rock music from the 70s, so at least I could hum along to the tunes. Stuff coming out now just annoyed me. Bands with more hairspray than talent, and every song was about how great they were. Guy can't relate to that shit unless he's in their band. And there it is, episode 5. I want to thank you for listening. There are a lot of new listeners, a lot of new people who are uh, part of the Solitaire Rose Radio Network. We've got a lot of podcasts we do, too. Uh, Next week is a new episode of Bad Advice, the humor podcast I do with uh, Dangerous Dan Moore and Wolfie B. Bad. Every Monday is Crazy Comics and Stories, which is a long-running comic book podcast that uh, every Monday comes out every Monday. And we've been doing it for over 300 episodes. There's also Solitaire Rose Radio. And um, a new podcast that I'm not even a part of called Scrabbling Through the West. It's at scrabbling.solitairerose.com. And here's uh, Dave and Stephanie Caffell to tell you about it. Traveling across the West, a fortnightly retelling of Dave and Stephanie. Wait, Co- fortnightly? That means every two weeks. I know what it means. What if we wanted to do it more or less often than every two weeks? <laughs> well, that wouldn't be holding down the fort, would it? Oh, you're funny. Okay, how about frequently? All right, I'm good with that. Okay. 
Scrabbling Across the West, a frequent retelling of Dave and Stephanie Kofel's adventures in traveling, making music, and playing Scrabble across the Western Hemisphere. It's all about the people, the places, and the game. Scrabbling Across the West. Bye-bye. in the Solitaire Rose Radio Network have ads. Here are ours. That's right. Here at the Solitaire Rose Radio Network, we have ads. And our first sponsor is me. That's right. Your charming and delightful old Uncle Rap Bastard. I have my first book out with Dangerous Dan Moore. It's the first hundred strips of our online web strip, Worldwide News, the story of the lowest-rated cable news network. And you can get yourself a copy with commentary, with all sorts of extras, with uh, signatures and everything. Just email dan over at lordshadowflame at gmail.com. Our top sponsor, who's been with us since day one, is DreamHost. DreamHost.com. You need yourself a website, and DreamHost.com is the number one web host in the whole known universe. Just head over to DreamHost.com, put in the code CRAZY, K-R-A-Y-Z, get $20 off your first year. How can you beat that? Our other sponsor is Graze, G-R-A-Z-E.com. Healthy snacks for a healthy lifestyle. Just head over to Gray's, put in the code C-O-R-Y-S-3-R-5-P. Your first and fifth box are free. You can get them weekly. You can get them bi-weekly. You can get them monthly. You just order a whole bunch of them. It's great stuff to keep you away from the vending machine at work. Now, if you would like to leave a comment for any of the podcasts that we do, we'd love those. Go ahead and email us at solitairerosenetwork at gmail.com or you can call 952-856-0519. Operators are standing by. Okay, it's just a place that will record your calls, but we'll play them on the air. We'll answer your questions. We love getting feedback. Tell us what you think. Ask a question. Suggest a topic. Be a guest. Send us your stuff. SolitaireRoseNetwork at gmail.com. If you would like to advertise on any of the Solitaire Rose radio shows, you can. Just email us at SolitaireRoseNetwork at gmail.com. Subject advertising. Thanks. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for spreading the word. Um, over the last um, year or so, Solitaire Rose Network has really kind of exploded. The main podcast that we do has almost doubled in listenership. And I want to thank people who have uh, found the podcasts and enjoy them. We will be back in two weeks with part six of Do the Job. <laughs>